This has come to the table. Bible studies from the New Testament Christian Church of Cheyenne. These studies are presented every Tuesday night at 7 p.m. at our church at 3800 East Pershing Boulevard in Cheyenne, Wyoming. If you'd like to contribute to these studies, you can make a donation at www.myntcc.org backslash Cheyenne WY dash giving. Matthew chapter 13. I was going to start at the tail end of chapter 12 and teach a little bit on who is the true family of Christ, but I, I think that that's pretty self-explanatory. It's not a, a particularly deep or difficult lesson, and so let's just go ahead and jump into the new chapter if we can and say, all right, well, you piqued my interest. Who's the true family of Christ? Whosoever does the will of the Father. Period. End of story. Who's a brother of Jesus? Whosoever does the will of the Father. Who's, uh, who's the mother and the sister and the brother of our Lord? Whosoever does the will of the Father. Plain and simple. Chapter 13. Let's go ahead and start in verse 1. Now he says, The same day went Jesus out of the house and sat by the seaside, and a great multitude were gathered together unto him, so that he went into a ship and sat, and the whole multitude stood on the shore. Now, there's just a, as an aside, I still think it's very interesting, uh, a quick physics lesson here. Jesus wasn't trying to get away from the crowd. He was trying to position himself where he could be better heard because water is a wonderful soundboard. It really is. It's a great amplifier. I don't know if you've ever been out hunting or camping or something like that or just out shooting in the middle of nowhere where there was a lake, but a gunshot, the sound of a gunshot will rocket right across those waves and it'll carry over water much further and much better than it'll carry over land. It's got much fewer obstacles. It's a great big flat expanse, and it's just really good. So Jesus went out into a ship a little ways from the shore so that his voice could carry across the water and better into the ears of those that were there to hear him. He says there was a great multitude there. That's a lot of people. I don't know if it was in the hundreds or in the thousands, but there were a lot of people that by chapter 13 of Matthew's Gospel had heard of Jesus, and they knew that he had good food, so to speak. They knew that he had something that they had not heard from their other teachers. And we might get a little bit deeper into that. Uh, the teachers of that day were typically the scribes, and Jesus spoke with greater authority, knowledge, and understanding than any of those scribes. He was a far better teacher. He was the teacher of all teachers. And so he went out into the ship and then he addressed them beginning in verse 3. It says, And he spake many things unto them in parables, saying, Behold, a sower went forth to sow. And when he sowed, some seeds fell by the wayside, and the fowls came and devoured them up. Some fell on, upon stony places where they had not much earth, and forthwith they sprung up because they had no deepness of earth. And when the sun was up, they were scorched because they had no root. They withered away. And some fell among thorns and the thorns sprung up and choked them. But other fell into good ground and brought forth fruit. Some an hundredfold, some sixtyfold, some thirtyfold. Who hath ears to hear, let him hear. Let me stop right there for a second, if I can. Parables. So what are parables? Well, we know what parables are. They're usually short stories, often fictitious 
as far as the characters involved, but they always carry um, a plot line really isn't the word, but they carry a moral lesson. And it might be something very simple, but even when simple, it's usually something that's profound. Okay, these were right out of the words of our of our Lord's mouth. And so however often we may have read them or heard them and they've been preached more times in the last 2000 years, I'm sure. Uh, and so there's nothing new. And, and, and many of these many of these parables have passed into secular knowledge and secular use because they're so well known. So he shares with them and there's several There's quite a few parables that he shares in this chapter. This is not a short chapter. It goes all the way over 58 verses long. We're not even going to try to cover all that tonight because there are way too many lessons in here that we want to park on and extract some depth and, and some meaning from. So he says, a sower went forth to sow. That's the guy with the bag of seed. This was 2,000 years ago. They didn't have combines. and they didn't. Well, combines aren't used for sowing, but they didn't have heavy equipment and machinery and things like that. The industrial age was a long way off. And so when it was time to sow seed, you went out and you did it by hand, right? Poke a hole in the ground, drop some corn or whatever it is that you were planting and however it was that you did it. So he went out to sow and he said, when he sowed, some seeds fell by the wayside and the fowls came and devoured them up. And he goes all the way through talking about the wayside and stony places and then thorny ground. He talks about three kinds of ground where the seed didn't even really have a chance. The wayside, that's like, that's the, uh, what do they call that? The shoulder of the road where you pull over when you've blown out a tire. It's not real good ground there. At best, you've got some gravel on some very hard-packed earth. And the only thing that's going to grow there is some weeds, and even it's going to have a struggle doing that. And so anything good that you really want, it's not going to grow really well there. It's going to lay right there on the top of the ground. It hasn't been broken up. It hasn't been aerated. It hasn't been, uh, it hasn't been anything. And so what's going to happen? Well, the birds of the air are going to come right in. They're going to eat that seed right off the wayside ground. And then he speaks of the stony ground, which isn't much better. It's pretty much the same way. It's a little bit better than the wayside ground. And it says that forthwith that seed, it sprung up. In other words, it quickly took root just enough to pop up out of the ground because there was no depth of root to that thing. So all of its growth, all of its growing energy went above the ground, but there was nothing underneath, hardly at all underneath to sustain it, right? Now, we've, I don't know if you've seen this on Facebook. I saw it a few weeks ago. Uh, it's been making its rounds, and I'm sure it's, been, it's, it's already been talked about from probably many other pulpits by now. Um, but there was a man talking about the bamboo tree and how for something like five years after planting, nothing comes up above the ground. Now, I haven't done the study on this. I haven't vetted it to see if that's urban legend or if that's true. Uh, I'm, I'm getting some confirmation that yes, it is true. But for five years, that thing just stays below ground and it doesn't even, it doesn't seem to be growing at all. And so from when you're the guy walking around on the surface of the earth and looking, it doesn't look like anything's happening. But there is growth that's happening. It's all happening underneath the surface. It's putting down roots and it's, doing whatever it has to do. What happens in the fifth or the sixth year? Well, then it breaks ground and then it grows so fast 
And not so fast that you can hear it growing, but I don't know, maybe you can at night. I've heard of such things. You can just hear it kind of hissing out of the ground. But the bamboo, I think the bamboo tree grows at a rate of like an inch. What was it? Do you remember? It's not an inch a day, is it? I think it's as much as an inch a day or a half inch a day. It's something pretty it's something pretty outrageous. It's, it's pretty amazing. It is very, very rapid growth. Well, how is it able to do that? It spent five years under the ground gathering its strength, you could say. And there are some Christians that are like that. They get saved and it doesn't seem like a whole lot's happening in their life or in their mind. But then there's a certain stretch of time and then they seem to explode in spiritual growth and producing fruit like mad. And by fruit, I'm talking about things ranging from the fruit of the Spirit, which involves their own attitude and their own conduct and how they live their life, all the way to things like they become, they become engines of witness to the unbeliever and to those outside the faith. They become nonstop soul winners. Some believers really are like that. Some it takes longer than that. Some people, they hear the word and they receive it gladly uh, right off the bat. And it seems to take root and it seems to produce something that pokes up above the surface. And then other believers, they see that and they're like, yay, one of us. And it's, it's real. They really hit the rock. And, and then a week later or a month later or even three months later or even later than that, they just poof, they're gone. Or, or, or something happens in their life and they just blow right out. Well, what happened? Let's actually read down a little bit further and we'll talk about it. In verse 10, his disciples came to him. Jesus' disciples came to him and said unto him, Why speakest thou unto them in parables? And he answered and said unto them, Because it is given unto you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it is not given. Now, what's that mean? It's given unto Christians. It's given unto... Who's it given to? Why wouldn't he give it to the people that he was actually talking to? Why was he telling them in... Why was he talking to them in parables knowing that they weren't going to get it? At least not right off the bat. Well, he explains it right here. And this is... You can, you can actually refer to this in these next few verses, 11, 12, 13 or so, um, as the endowment from heaven. He says, it is given unto you. He's talking to his disciples those that had the appetite to know and to learn and to understand and not just be surface level believers. He says it's given unto you to know the mysteries of the kingdom, but to them, speaking to the Jews that were on the shore, he says it is not given. For whosoever hath to him shall be given. Boy, that'll hair lip every socialist in a mile, won't it? Well, that's not fair. Don't you know that if you have more than me, it must mean that you stole it from somebody? That's socialist thinking. You can't teach this stuff and not touch on political ideologies, really. You probably could, but it's just so wide open. It's begging to be touched on, right? And so he says, to him, to who, for whosoever hath, to him shall be given, and he shall have more abundance. But whosoever hath not, from him shall be taken away even that he hath. Ooh, ouch. Does that mean what I think it means? Yes. That sounds awfully harsh. Whether it's harsh or not, I'm not going, I'm not going to venture to say, at least not out loud, not here in this venue, but it's what our Lord says. 
And there's something behind that. Now, that's, that fills those without anything. It fills them with absolute terror because they think, oh, well, don't you know I'm poor, I'm needy, I'm destitute, I need help, I need help, I need help, I need help. And there are those that do need help. And that's talking about in the natural, okay? Here he says, for whosoever hath shall be given and he shall have more abundance. Okay, so the, the have will have more. And the have not, Jesus says, the have not will have taken away even what little that he has. And there's a reason for that. There's a number of reasons. And there's actually a whole deeper teaching that we can do on this. I have not prepared of an exhaustive teaching on this. Perhaps we'll do that next week, Lord willing. Because there's a lot of bad political, social, and philosophical ideology about this sort of thing that's going around. And it's really taken root. And it tends to happen in societies that prosper. It, you know, I would think I was talking with Reverend DeRyder. It might have been uh, Brother Bob over here uh, last week sometime that, you know, the socialists of the 19th century, they can be forgiven. You can forgive the socialists of the 19th century because all they were working on was theory. It had never been tried anywhere, really. It had never really been tested. It had been tested a little bit. It had been tested to a very small extent at the very beginnings of the Christian church. If you go over in the book of Acts, when, when people were really starting to believe and become born again, and their numbers were growing into something significant and it was catching attention, they experimented with um, with community of goods, let's call it that, okay? And they did that for a specific reason, so that no one would have need. But that didn't even last into the medium term, let alone into the long term, because wherever you have that sort of thing, you've always got loafers that don't pitch in and do their share. You've always got those that are going to suck off the system, and they will not dive into the work themselves. And and I know it seems like we're rabbit trailing, but we're not. It ties directly into what Jesus is saying here about this, what we call the endowment of heaven. Um, and there's a poem out there. Actually, I was thinking of sharing it. Maybe we'll share it next week when we, if, if we teach deeper on this particular parable. Called, it's a poem called To Be of Use. It's by a woman named Marge Piercy. Uh, no, she's not a believer, but it was... Uh, it, it's, a, it's a very good piece of literature. I'll just put that out there. Maybe we'll share it next week if it's pleasing to the Lord, if it's edifying. But the socialists of the 20th century, uh-uh, they don't get a pass because they're the ones who tried it. And they're the ones that because they tried it, it resulted in like 100 million deaths across the industrialized world. You know, between communist China and the Soviet Union and the gulags that they had there and Cuba and Cambodia and, and, so, and it, numerous other places and like they're still learning down in South America. Venezuela is an absolute hole of, of lack and loss and misery and human suffering because of these things. And so... And if, if, the, if the socialists of the 20th century don't get a pass, then the socialists of the 21st century absolutely do not either. Because we have the lessons of the 20th century. And so we ought to be knowing better. And so there's this, it's an entitlement thinking that drives a lot of this stuff that because, because anybody has anything, they must have gotten it through some kind of dishonest means. And then there's greed that drives a lot of that kind of thinking and so on. And then, haven't really prepared any notes on all that, so I don't want to, I don't want to dwell on it much more than I already have. But here, Jesus reveals an entirely different kind of thinking. He says to him that has, 
He's going to be given more. And to him that doesn't have anything, or him who has not or lacks, he's going to have taken from him that which even he has. Well, why is that? It's because God's trying to set up some kind of social elite and then establish a social underclass upon which the upper class can stand? No. It's because God sees who does what with what He has given them. And if they've, if they've been faithful with what they have, He gives them more because He knows that they will do something with it. Do you remember when we talked about uh, the other parable? It was, early in our, it was earlier, much earlier in our red letter studies. We talked about uh, the, the, the men with the talents. You remember that one, don't you? And so there was a, I think it was a parable of the kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling into a far country. And he, he, uh, he gave to one of his servants ten talents. And the talents was not abilities. The talents was a unit of money. It was, a, it was, it was, a, it was currency. He gave, he gave to one ten talents. He gave to one like five. And he gave to one like one or something, something along those lines. Okay. And the first two servants that he gave the talents to went and did something with that money. They went and invested it and they turned it into even more money so that when the master returned, these men that were faithful stewards of their master's resources brought not only what they had been given, but brought an increase on top of that back to their master. And what did the master say? Well done, thou good and faithful servant, because thou hast been faithful over little, I shall reward you with much, except for the last guy. The last guy who had, you know what? I got a quarter, okay? The one guy who had like one talent. I mean, he could have done anything with it. He could have, he put a, could have, set up an account online and set up some penny stocks or something and bought 25 cents worth of penny stocks with his quarter. I'm not saying that's how much it was. But he didn't do anything. He didn't even try. He didn't even try. He took that and he went and buried it in a hill. Remember, I buried it in the ground somewhere. And then, uh, then his master came back and, and then the other guys brought their increase. And then here comes... Uh, oh, I don't have a good nickname for him. I, he just brought the one talent, neither a loss nor a gain. And then, and then he kind of did a passive aggressive little insult to the master. Uh, well, I knew that thou wert a hard master, a hard taskmaster, and you reap where you haven't sown. And I'm kind of, I'm kind of criticizing you without really criticizing you because I'm passive aggressive. You know what, and this is supposition on my part, okay? Don't take this as rock-solid fact, but I really believe that if that slothful, because he was slothful, lazy, because he was lazy, if that fearful also, he was fearful, and that's not a good way to be. It really isn't, because fear paralyzes everything. We've talked about that, okay? If that one lazy, fearful, disdainful, contemptuous servant if he had taken that talent and even just tried, say he'd invested it and the whole thing fell through. And then he came to his master and said, I tried to make you some money, boss, but it didn't work out. Cut me a break and I'll make it up to you somehow. You can take it out of my earnings. I think, really think that that, and I don't know it was a parable too, but I think that the master would have had a different attitude. Because effort really does mean something to God. It really does. 
God weighs the reins and the hearts. God measures the intent and the soul of a person. He doesn't just measure the works and he doesn't just measure the words. He measures the character and he measures the intentions of the heart. I really think that that servant would have been a whole lot better off than him just being the kind of guy that he was and doing what he did. So here, let's get back to this particular parable. He says, whosoever hath to him shall be given because what God gives us, if we're responsible with it, and we use it for good and we use it for right, there's fruit that comes from that. And then God knows that he can trust us with more. Give someone responsibility and see if they're faithful with it. And then they are, if they prove themselves with it, then they show that they are capable of handling greater responsibility and therefore greater honors. And, and likewise, he says, those who have not, or he that, let's actually read it word for word, whosoever hath not, from him shall be taken away even that he hath. And this is all part of this teaching about the endowment from heaven. So to the disciples it was given to understand the mysteries of heaven. It wasn't given to the people on the shore. And then he says here in verse 13, Therefore speak I to them in parables, because they, seeing, see not, and hearing, they hear not, neither do they understand. In other words, the words that I'm saying, Jesus was saying, the words that I'm speaking are bouncing off their eardrums and it's registering noise signals going to the brain, but none of it is being interpreted as signal. Remember, we've talked about that, I think, in times gone by, signal versus noise. It's a, it's a popular, or it's a, not to say it's popular, but it's a fairly well-known phrase in astronomy, I think, uh, especially in projects like SETI. I don't know if that's ever going to come to any kind of fruition, but um, astronomy where... Um, they've got satellites and they've got their, astro- their, their telescopes pointing at the sky and their great big dishes pointed at the sky. And it's always receiving, it's always receiving um, like radiation noise, right? It's uh, from cosmic rays, heat radiation, and all the stuff that's bouncing around out there in the space between the celestial bodies. But there's a difference, and that's called noise. And there's a difference between noise and signal. See, they're always searching for signal. Because signal is something from an intelligent source and signals intent and the the attempt to communicate and all that, right? Well, these guys here on the shore, it was a case of all they were hearing was noise, but Jesus was sending out signal. They just weren't picking up on it. They were hearing his words, but they were not understanding. And thus he says, thus he says, because seeing they see not and hearing they hear not, neither do they understand. And in them is the prophecy, verse 14, in them is the prophecy, is fulfilled the prophecy of Esaias, or Isaiah, which saith, by hearing ye shall hear, and shall not understand, and seeing ye shall see, and shall not perceive. For this people's heart, he gives the reason right here in the next verse, for this people's heart is waxed gross, and their ears are dull of hearing. Have you ever lectured a teenager you after about the first 15 seconds you may as well be talking to a tree because their eyes just glaze over and their ears are dull of hearing and they're just it's like those old charlie brown cartoons if you remember those growing up whenever an adult was talking 
And that's all it is when it's coming out of when it's coming out of an adult's mouth, and especially when it's coming out of mom and dad's mouth, and especially when it's a lecture coming out of mom and dad's mouth. It's like just shoot me and be done with it. It will be better than this lecture. Well, that's what it means to be dull of hearing. Their ears were dull of hearing. And their eyes they have closed, lest at any time they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and should understand with their heart and should be converted and I should heal them. So this people were in this condition as a fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. Jesus' own people. He's standing out there on a boat sharing with them the words of life telling them a parable about the sower and the seed that he was sowing and then explaining it to them. And he was sharing them with this parable that really isn't all that hard to understand at all. Wayside ground, stony ground, thorny ground. But that the prophecy would be fulfilled, they weren't understanding it. He says in verse 16, but blessed are your eyes. He says this to his disciples now, not those that were standing on the shore. He says, but blessed are your eyes for they see and your ears for they hear. For verily I say unto you that many prophets and righteous men have desired to see those things which you see, which ye see and have not seen them and to hear those things which ye hear and have not heard them. There's a similar verse elsewhere in the Scriptures that talk about how the angels of God have desired to look into these spiritual things that we have received by the grace of God and by the Spirit of Almighty God and by the blood of Jesus Christ. These mysteries of the Spirit, the angels of God have desired to look into to understand, and they don't. They don't understand because they can't understand because they do not have the human experience. And in this case, what's that human experience of having been lost and then of having been changed and saved? They don't have that insight. They don't have that understanding. So verse 18, he begins to explain it. He says, hear ye therefore the parable of the sower. When anyone heareth the word of the kingdom and understandeth it not, then cometh the wicked one and catcheth away that which was sown in his heart. This is he which received seed by the wayside. So these parables about the different kind of ground, we understand that the different kind of ground is the different conditions of the human heart. The wayside ground was so hard and so uh, imperceptive, so to speak, and unreceptive that it really couldn't even receive it. It couldn't even get a start. And so the birds of the air just come by and snatch it away. He says, he understands it not, and then comes the wicked one and catches away that which was sown. This is he which received seed by the wayside. But he that received the seed unto stony places, the same as he that heareth the word, and Anon, meaning presently, with joy receiveth it. Yet he hath not root in, he hath not root in himself but dureth or endureth for a little while. For when tribulation or persecution ariseth because of the word, by and by he is offended. Let's stop there for a second because there's lots of people like this. This is stony ground. And I know we already explained it a little bit, but stony ground is still viable ground. 
right? It's still got what it needs. It's got aerobic and anaerobic bacteria in it and things to at least germinate a seed and get a good start. And a lot of people's hearts are just like that. It's just also full of rocks. Washington State, anybody? If you've lived there, at least the part that we lived in, you couldn't dig a hole in your own backyard without chink rocks, big ones. I think one man called them dinosaur eggs. They weren't really dinosaur eggs, but they may as well have been. They were just great big rocks that got in the way of everything. And if you even wanted to dig out, dig out anything at all to put a patio in your own yard, you had to just about rent an excavator or dedicate eight solid hours of breaking your back and blistering your hands. Well, that's the kind of ground Jesus is talking about here. And that's not good ground. It's got some usable dirt in there, but there's all these rocks in the way. Well, what are those rocks metaphorically being? Well, they could be a lot like the thorns and could be cares of life, could just be dense patches in our understanding, or it could be just an unwillingness to receive something that's actually good. Well, I like my ground stony, thank you very much. I don't. It's not really good for growing any kind of food out of it. You're not going to get much out of it. Really, not much at all. Good for making a landing strip for a military aircraft, maybe, but that's about it. And so he explains that. He says, He that received the seed into stony places, the same as he that heareth the word and, and presently, all right, let's just use an updated word, with joy receives it because it's, it's, it's soft enough, it's easy enough, and it's sweet enough to appeal to accept it right off the bat. And that's the message of forgiveness and salvation right there. That's Because that's a sweet message, isn't it? Oh, you mean I can, forgiven of every, I can be forgiven of everything I ever did wrong? Oh, that's great. Yeah, I'll take that. That's wonderful. It is, give me that. I'll take that. But the moment that that seed then germinates and, and starts to sprout and it starts to put out any kind of roots, it hits all these hard things. It hits all this hardness in the human heart unwilling, unmoving things. That's what rocks are. They're, they're just, they're rocks, man. They're not, you can't grow stuff in rocks. And that's what it's like. And so they'll take that little bit at the entry level and they'll take that with joy. But then when there's anything that requires any kind of growth and that word tries to put down any root, any depth of root and then grow up beyond that, uh-uh. Nothing happening. And so you think, all right, well, that's fine. They'll just be a shallow believer. No, 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 no. Because you got to read again, read on what he says here. Actually, let's go back to the parable itself where he says, some fell upon stony places where they had not much earth and forthwith they sprung up because they had no deepness of earth. These were not bamboo shoots or bamboo plants, okay? Because it's not going to grow in that stuff. And so it pops up out of the ground. But then verse 6, he says, and when the sun was up, they were scorched because and because they had no root, they withered away. So that shallow believer that loves the forgiveness message and the, and the sweetness of the message of the love of God. And I know my thoughts that I have towards you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace, etc. You know, they love the sweetness of that message, but that when there's anything that has any greater flavor or depth or strength to it, it hits those rocks, it doesn't grow, they don't grow, and then when the sun comes up, 
See, they're, they're doing okay as long as there's no troubles. As long as there's no trials. As long as there's no difficulties. As long as there's no tribulation. As long as there's no anything that comes up against them. But when the sun comes up, that's the metaphor for the trials and the hardships of life. Because, hello, the sun always comes up. And life will always have trials and it will always have things to test and harden a man and a woman. When that sun comes up in, in this metaphor, because that growth, that because that springing up of the Word, if you will, has no depth of root, that sun burns up all its moisture just like that, and then it wilts and withers and dries and dies. It dies. Done. It's not alive anymore. And you see that happen with some people. And then when Jesus is explaining it, He says here, He explains it thus in verse 21, Yet hath He no root in Himself, but dureth for a while. For when tribulation or persecution ariseth because of the Word, by and by, He is offended. This is the guy or the girl that doesn't want to hear the deeper and more demanding teachings of the word. And it's not even so much that the, that, the, that the teachings are demanding. It's that they are more revealing and they don't like what's revealed because they reveal responsibilities and, and standards of conduct in the word of God that they do not want to submit to. And that's when they get offended. Well, I shouldn't have to do da 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 da. I shouldn't have to stop doing da 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 da. I should. Well, God understands. I don't think that I have to. You're offended. Are you offended? Offended. So okay. So what's the believer in that condition to do? Well, if they're smart, and if they want God, if they if they want God more than they are interested in nursing their personal offenses or holding on to those rocks that's in their ground, they'll let the Word of God be a plow as well as seed and break up the ground and get those rocks. So back in the 1990s, um, back in the 1990s, one of, uh, one of our ministers in the, in the place that I was at was having, a, he was having a house built. And he was having it built out in a place in Graham. And it was a place, well, all of Graham is full of rocks. I mean, it's all full of rocks. So the house was built, but, you know, there's no yards out there. If you're going to have a yard in that part of the state, you have to bring in topsoil and you have to bring in sod and you have to dump an ocean of water on that thing all the time to get it to take root. Kind of like putting sod down here, except that it's all sand instead of rocks. And But before he could do that, he wanted to get the rocks out of that yard so that this stuff would actually grow beyond about an inch into the soil. And so got a bunch of folks together and we were all out there strapping young men and not so strapping young men. A lot of us were working in construction in that time. And we were out there with picks and shovels digging these big old honking rocks out of the ground. That's what we need to do if our ground is stony ground. You see, the, the answer to that situation, it's not, it's, not good, it's not enough to just label a, someone with a condition and then not give them a solution to that condition. If the problem is that the ground is stony, let's get the stones out. And the stones are the unwillingness of an unwilling human heart to yield to the Spirit of God. So let's get 
the rocks out of our ground. If in fact any of us here are in that particular condition. That's the solution. The solution isn't to get offended and let the sun come up and then burn away what, what we've gotten from God because then we're like, as Jesus said in the previous chapter, our latter end is worse than our first. So that's never the solution. The solution is to get the rocks out of our ground. Be willing. Be willing. And if we're not willing, then pray that prayer that we learned so long ago. Make me willing to be willing. I am willing to be made willing, O Lord. I don't want stony ground in my heart. I want the good ground. And then he goes on and talks about the thorny ground. He says in verse 22, He also that received seed among the thorns is he that heareth the word and the care of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and he becometh un. Fruitful. So that's a different kind of problem. That's not the same thing as stony ground. Stony ground is unyielding and not willing to give and not willing to let the good things grow or let things, good things grow beyond just the barest minimum. Now, that is a huge number of believers in the world today. The thorny ground is another huge number of believers today. And that is, they've received the Word and they receive it, they receive it gladly and it takes root and it starts to grow. And they don't really have, they don't have rocks in their heart, so to speak. They don't have stones in their ground. They've got a bunch of thorns and weeds growing in that ground. And those are the cares of life. The problems with the job. The problems with the money, the problems with the girlfriend, the problems with the boyfriend, the problems with health, the problems with this, the problems with that. Well, don't you know, I've got about three different osuses and, and, and isms that I've been diagnosed with, preacher, don't you know? And I just can't put it together. I just can't be in church because reasons. Don't you see the cares of life choking every good thing that you have? Don't you see the cares of life? I'm not talking about the incidental things that happen once here or there. You know, your, your wheel falls off your car while you're driving or suddenly you got diagnosed with a cancer and you have to be out for a while with chemo. I'm not talking about things like that. We're talking about the cares of life that are manageable. Cares of life are usually, mostly, manageable. So I got too many things on my plate. Then you either get a bigger plate or you start, you start prioritizing what goes on that plate. If I only got 24 hours in a day and I feel like I'm being strung out for 16 to 18 hours, well, hey, it's time to evaluate your life and say, this is worth something. This is worth something. These three things aren't. Years ago in Jacksonville, Florida, all right, I'm going to give you my own personal example on this, okay? And I used to have many hobbies. I mean, many. I was very much, uh, from the time of junior high school all the way through high school and, and, and all the way through the military, I had many hobbies. Most of them were in the arts. They were in music. They were in, they were in, I did, I did a lot of black and white inks. I did some oil painting, but I let that one die on the vine because that's just a lot of work and a lot of resources. It's not a poor man's, it's not really a poor man's hobby, but I did ceramics and sculpture and music. I was involved in all these different things and I had an interest in all these things and, and I was 
just good enough at them to not want to quit them, right? So you see this is going somewhere. These aren't boasts and brags. But in Jacksonville, Florida, 1998-1999, I found myself in the ministry and I found myself realizing very quickly, I don't have time to keep up all of these interests. It's not possible. I had to work a full-time job. I was very much involved in the ministry and, and staying very busy in that. And, and there's just, a, as a bachelor preacher, all your domestic responsibility are yours. If you don't do your laundry, it walks to work by itself. If you don't cook, then you don't eat. Or you just die early of a heart attack but from eating at, at, at drive throughs all the time for years on end. So there was all of that already on my plate. And so I had to learn very quickly, I got to let some things go. Really? I got to let some things go. And so I prioritized. All right, well, God in the ministries first. And the secular job, of course, that's got to be there because that's got to pay the bills at that time. That's how it was. And then... You know, I've got to be able to, to, to manage my own home and take care of myself. And so, well, what does that leave time and room for? Well, it didn't leave time and room for all of those other things. And maybe it would have. I just needed to learn some time management skills. That's a lot of people's problems is they just don't know how to manage even 12 hours on a clock. And they don't know how to, but there's a lot, you just don't know how to build in buffers and all that to keep from burning your clock and your candle down to absolutely nothing. But the cares of life are a real tool of the devil. They really are. I don't have time, I don't have time, I don't have time, I don't have time. Actually, you do. You do. And why is it that when somebody hits that time battle, a lot of times God always pays the price? Why is it that church always falls off the back of the stove? Why does our relationship with God always get shoved off the back of the stove and not the other things? Or some of the other things. You know, years ago, my daughter was involved in soccer. But we never let soccer interfere with what we had to do for the Lord. We never let that interfere with what that had to do with the Lord. I think there was maybe one incident and it wasn't... uh, And I think it was like a Saturday thing or something like that. We never missed church because of it. We never missed a Bible study because of it. It just wasn't going to happen. Because cares of life have a tendency of... They don't share well. Cares of life don't share the garden. They take over the garden. And then you don't have anything good. You don't have any tomatoes. You don't have any squash. You don't have any, well, I don't know if you're a broccoli fan or not, you know. You don't have, you don't have any snap peas. You don't have any, uh, you don't have any lettuce. You don't have any cabbage. You don't have anything at all that's good. You just have the cares of life that come in and choke everything good and then dominate you. And then, then you don't even have any peace. Then you don't, you don't even have any peace. And so, This was the first of the parables that Jesus taught on. There's quite a few in this chapter, and we'll go through them all over the next week or so, however long it takes us to get through them. But he explains it here to his disciples in verses 18 forward. And then in verse 23, he explains, He that received seed into the good ground is he that heareth the word and understandeth it, which also beareth fruit and bringeth forth some an hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. 
So if you'll tame, if you'll tame the cares of life, draw your boundaries, set up your barricades in your garden and say, like that line from that movie, you shall not pass. And then keep that word and don't let the cares of life pass those lines. And you keep the rocks out of your garden. And you keep your garden plowed so it doesn't become hard and fallow like wayside ground. Then the garden of your heart and of your mind and therefore of your whole life will receive the word and it will bear amazing, wonderful fruit. First inwardly, as God works in you, and and brings you more and more under the standard of Jesus Christ, and then more and more outwardly. And some people, they manifest it in tandem. They're like, they got saved yesterday, and they're bringing folks to church three days later, you know? And God's working in their heart, and and Jesus on the inside working on the outside. The whole point is, you got to keep the ground of your heart good and receptive, or the Word won't ever bear fruit. And other things will that won't be good. Thank you for listening to Come to the Table. Bible studies from the New Testament Christian Church of Cheyenne. Included in these presentations are red-letter studies on the life and teachings of our Lord Jesus Christ, historical studies on the Old Testament, topical studies on biblical doctrines, and practical studies on Christian life. If you enjoyed this presentation, you can support our efforts by contributing at www.myntcc.org backslash Cheyenne WY giving.